0: When others challenge your faith, find strength through the prayers and support of your church. When others challenge your faith, find strength through the prayers and support of your church. Let's look and see what the scriptures do. By the way, you're not alone. You're not alone. You have the the support system of a church. Let's pick back up, verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they had heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. There it is again. You remember that from previous? What do, how did we see the disciples before the book of Acts? They couldn't agree on anything. They were They were always like, who's going to be the greatest? There was all this constant debate. Jesus dies. He's resurrected. And the disciples are like, okay, we get it. And from that point on, what do we see throughout the book of Acts? They were united. They were in one accord. They were constantly in prayer. There was a unification around them that we had never seen in the gospel accounts with the disciples. We see something miraculously changed. They said, Lord, you are God. So here's their prayer recorded right here in Scripture. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now let's pause there just for a moment. What are they quoting? This is actually Psalm 2. This is from Psalm chapter, or yeah, Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is is a psalm about when a new king is coronated, when a new king takes the throne, there inevitably are some people who are going to refuse to acknowledge the king. And those people who refuse, uh, sometimes they plot vain things. Sometimes they're like, we're not going to follow the new king. We're, we're going to do our own thing. Instead, some begin, they begin to plot against the new king, instead of celebrating his coronation. So before we continue here, let's quickly skip over to Psalm chapter 2. Let's get a full picture of what they have in mind. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. What, is this not incredible that we're seeing this play out right here in Acts? This is, this is a prophetic uh, psalm, and, and we're seeing it happen. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. In other words, God's, God's like, uh, you you're silly. You know, what do you think you're doing? He who sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the end of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces with the potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So what did we see in Acts chapter 4? They're referencing this. They're saying, we're seeing Psalm chapter 2 play out. A new king has taken the throne. Who is the king? Jesus. What do we see? The rulers gathering together and plotting against. That's Psalm chapter 2. That's what they're doing. And they're praying, and they're saying, Lord, you see this, and you laugh. They were saying, Jesus is on his throne, and God laughs at their attempts to stop his plans. Why? I mean, look back at verse, uh, look at this. I want you to see that they have identified Jesus as the king on the throne, but they said this. They identify those who are rulers who plot a vain thing against God. Now look back at verse 27. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, then he starts naming the names of those who were plotting against him, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. In other words, God, you laugh because they were trying to stop the gospel, but yet the things that they were doing are actually helping the spread of the gospel. Why, why was God laughing? Because he's like, they, they think that they think that they were stopping Jesus by crucifying him, but yet through his death we have life. They think that they're going to stop the church by threatening Peter and John to be silent, and they're going to put such pressure on them that they are eventually going to do what they're going to scatter for their lives, but in their scattering they're taking the gospel to the nations. And meanwhile, God's going, everything that you're doing, you're trying your best to stop it, and everything that you're doing is actually helping it progress. And God's laughing. Psalm 2, he's laughing. Now, lord look at this, verse 29. Now, Lord, look on their threats, and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. By stretching out your hand to heal— And that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. There we see it again. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. Who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we come to the end of the chapter. Do you approach prayer with that type of urgency? I mean, Peter and John run back and they're like, guys, let me tell you what happened. And they start telling them all these things, and they're like, let's pray. Let's pray. They didn't ask God to change their circumstances. No, that one part in that prayer is like, Lord, remove this circumstances, change this circumstances. The heart of the prayer was this: Lord, give us the boldness we need to speak your word. That's the heart of the prayer. Oh, that we would do the same. That we would say, Lord. Give us boldness. Give us boldness. But then there's one last thing I want us to consider and look at, and then we'll wrap it up. Have you ever wondered, how did Luke know what the Sanhedrin was saying after Peter and John left the room? <laughs> Do you ever wonder that? Do you ever think, oh, what is that? That's kind of strange. Luke is writing all this stuff down, and Peter, they told Peter and John, and they all left the room. What happened? how did Luke get that information? How did Luke know what they were saying in that little huddle of the Sanhedrin? Well, I mean, you know, we could certainly say, well, the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture, so maybe there was something supernatural about it that gave Luke supernatural insight, and that's that's possible. I really think that there's a much simpler solution, and we've already seen that there were some in the Sanhedrin that didn't agree with the decisions that were being made. One of those was a man named Joseph. In fact, I shared that uh, when we got to this point, and I told Lynn uh, specifically, I was like, we'll get there. We'll get to that point where, where we talk about the rich young ruler and, 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 and uh, Joseph of Arimathea and, and uh, Barnabas. We're going to get there, and here we are. A man that was part of the Sanhedrin by the name of Joseph. I want you to consider this. Let's let's back all the way up to the Gospel account of Luke. The first introduced to a man who was simply called a rich, young ruler. He asked Jesus this question. He says, "Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus responds to him, "You know the commandments. Yeah, you know, don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal." don't bear false witness, honor your mom and dad. And how did he respond? He said, I've done all of those since I was a kid. I've done all those since I was, I was young. Now, I want you to hear this, because here's, here's the key in understanding who this guy is. Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. There's one thing you lack. Let me, let me put it in another way. There's one law I can think of that you're not obeying. Jesus had this way. Every, every encounter that he had with people, Jesus had this way of revealing that he knows something about their heart that only Jesus, only God would know. I mean, he had all these encounters with different people, and he was like, I know something you don't think I should know. And he's like, there's still one thing you lack." You've, you've done it, you haven't murdered, you honored your mom and dad, you haven't stolen anything, you've done all those, that's good, but I can think of one. And then he does what? He says, he says, "Sell all you have, give it to the poor, then come follow me." Why well, That seems strange, right? I mean, why would he tell him that? Why would he tell him, "Go sell everything that you have, then come follow me." It doesn't really seem like he's answering the question, "What can I do to have and, and inherit eternal life? what's he what's he saying he's saying there's still one thing you lack there's still a, a a law that you're not obeying and it would be sell everything that you have give it to the poor why would it where is that law? The law is in one place it only exists for a specific group of people the Levites the Levites were not allowed to own property the Levites were not we're not they were to be provided for as the priest of the community and they 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 were to be given things but they were not to be they were not they were to be given land but not on the land okay they, they were not to be possessors of those things so what's Jesus saying he said so when he says hey I can think of a law I can think of one thing that you're not doing sell everything that you have He's pushing the button. That's what Jesus does. He's pushing buttons. He's saying, I know something intimately about you. You're a Levite. You're not supposed to own anything. You're supposed to sell all of that stuff. You're not even supposed to have it to begin with. So what do we walk away with? We we walk away with this understanding when Jesus says, sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Jesus is saying, I know that you're a Levite. And the scriptures say that you are not even supposed to be in possession of those things. You're not supposed to own those things. Then we have at the end of the gospel account, Luke's gospel account, we read about a rich, young ruler by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea. It's interesting. Again, the same language is used to describe this guy, Joseph of Arimathea, that was used to describe the rich young ruler. I mean, you're looking at it and you're going, oh, that's the same word. That's the exact same description of here. Now, is this guy not only rich, young ruler? What what else do we know about him? He's from Arimathea. What is Arimathea? Arimathea is a city that has been given to who? Levites. So, what do we know? We know that this Joseph of Arimathea is rich, he's young. He's a ruler. What is the word ruler He means that he's part of the religious rulers. He's part of the Sanhedrin. And he's a Levite. Tells us right here. Again, language that's used to describe him is the identical language that's used to describe the rich young ruler that's earlier in the gospel account of Luke. So saying Joseph of Arimathea is just the writer's way of informing us that he is a Levite and that he owned property. This Joseph was not only a Levite, he's part of the Sanhedrin. Luke 23, 50, listen to this. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. That's how he's described over and over. Barnabas is even described that way over and over. He had not consented to their decision and deed. Whose decision? The Sanhedrin. He's part of the Sanhedrin, but he doesn't like what they're doing and he's frustrated with it, and he's not consenting to agree. He's from Arimathea, a city of the Jews who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, you say, where in here does it say uh, we know that he was rich, we know that he was a ruler? Where does it say that he was young, right? Because where does it say that? Uh, The Greek word for man that we see here It says, Behold, there was a man named Joseph. The Greek word is aner, uh, A-N-E-R. And it's the word to indicate that he is no longer a boy, but he is a man who is old enough to be married. If I, for example, if I were to say, if I said a boy, if he's a boy, you don't think of someone in their 60s, right? You think what? Maybe five, ten? You think young. So we'd have very distinct, if we said, boy, man. Man is very general, but we would certainly not associate it with a boy. But what if I said bachelor? Because he's a bachelor. Would you think of somebody in their 70s? Or would you think of someone in their 20s? You know, we would use the word bachelor in reference to someone in their 20s. Same idea here. When the, when the word is used here in describing him on there, it's saying he's a man who's old enough to be married. And it's basically, it's, it, it's maybe how we would say bachelor. So it's saying he's rich, he's young, and he's part of the Sanhedrin. He's a ruler. We see it over and over and over. So once again, the language used describes a rich young ruler who is also a Levite. By the time we get to Acts chapter 4, we read, about another, uh, we read about a man named Joseph, sa- same as Joseph of Arimathea. We read this na- name, named Joseph. We see the same language being used again. Someone who was rich. Someone who was a young man. Someone who's old, en- old enough to be married. Okay, not, not, a, not a boy, but he's a, a bachelor. And he's a Levite. And yet he owned property. And at the end of the chapter, it says, he sold everything, came to follow Jesus. Sold everything. I want you to notice something. Look at verse 34. Verse 34, all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. Who did that? Everybody, everybody who had possession of land, everybody who owned a house, what did they do? They sold it. Everybody did. Don't you think it would be unnecessary for him to come back two verses later and say, and Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Seems unnecessary. I mean, he had just told us two verses earlier. Everybody did this. Why did Luke do it? Luke is saying this is significant. This is a big deal. This is somebody who, who is finishing a conversation that they had earlier with Jesus. We can come to two conclusions. We can say the rich young ruler, Joseph of Arimathea and Barnabas, are the same person. Because the overwhelming evidence is there. There's lots of description. description of all three and all three occurrences are the same person. Or the other camp, there's a lot of similarities, an overwhelming amount of similarities. The descriptions are identical for all three, but it's just coincidence, and they're three different people. You decide. I don't know. I, I find myself in the camp that it's think, that I think it seems as though it's the same person. And we're seeing that that rich young ruler who walked away initially sad, that Levite who owned property, now in Acts chapter 4, that Levite literally sold everything he owned and came to follow Jesus. And I think the reason Luke wrote specifically about this one because there was something significant about that one. Something that he had already told us earlier. Oh, that we would abandon everything to follow Jesus. Joseph sold everything. He was going to stand up for truth. No matter who was going to threaten him, and even if it meant walking away from the Sanhedrin, no one was going to threaten him to be silenced. And that leads me to one last thought. May we, too, be filled with the Holy Spirit and always speak the truth in love. Let's pray.